0: Welcome back, dear friends of the Sparker Podcast, to this new addition to the series of conversations with outstanding changemakers and innovators. This episode will be a special treat, because I had the privilege to talk to the man, the leader, who enabled enormous projects and teams to succeed and literally reach for the stars. I'm talking of none other than astrophysicist Professor Thomas Zurbuchen. Till the end of 2022, he was the chief scientist at NASA, and with that arguably one of the most powerful scientists on the planet, with responsibility over thousands of people and the 8 billion dollar budget. Under his leadership, NASA successfully launched the historic James Webb Telescope and landed robots on Mars, just among dozens of other impressive missions. In addition, Thomas promotes entrepreneurs, innovators and leaders to become the best versions of themselves wherever and whenever he can. Over his impressive career, Thomas learned a lot about high-performing teams by building and leading them. In this conversation, Thomas shares his leadership lessons, decision-making process, how to create an organization that learns faster than it fails and much, much more. So please enjoy this episode of the Sparker podcast, which was recorded in front of a live audience with the extraordinary human being, Thomas Zurbuchen. 5, 4, 3, 2, Unite, top! And we
1: have engine start. And lift off. Décollage. Décollage, lift-off, from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time
0: itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. That was it, ladies and gentlemen. After 20 years of building, that was the 10-second countdown. Please, Thomas, can you bring us to that moment that we just heard here?
1: Yeah, so, so first of all, it was... Uh, I was really tired that day because I didn't sleep much uh, the night before. Uh, what I did is I practiced uh, the speeches, both speeches. The one I gave, everybody forgot. And the one I would have given if it didn't work. I practiced that the night before with a camera. So to uh, focus in it. And of course, I didn't sleep all that well. But uh, but uh, the point is, uh, I was in, in the presence of my friends, uh, the ones that... We uh, you know, were partners in building that, and, uh, and of course, the rocket took off in the rainforest. This was uh, still during COVID times. So there were very few people there uh, um, uh, attending, and uh, I was really excited as the rocket was taking off and you know, mid every milestone, and frankly, the Europeans did such an amazing job releasing uh, the telescope that instead of having 10 years of lifetime of that telescope, taking images like that, it has 20 years of lifetime. So they they did it so accurately, we needed no fuel to get us to the trajectory, uh, you know, one and a half million kilometers away where the destination is. So it was just an amazing day, one of the most important in my life. It's just one example of releasing
0: the telescope that shows how complicated such a thing is. In hindsight, what was more complex or more challenging for you? Was it the technology problems or the people problems?
1: So it's actually funny. I did two leadership tasks, one of them you're talking about. And I also ran a startup ecosystem before that. And I started doing statistics for both. Where are the big problems coming from? And they're within 10% the same. And it is that uh, close to 80% are all people issues. Kind of Startups fail much more often because of people issues than because of technology issues. So teams disintegrate, like their, their, their hiring strategy, the kind of building the culture. Uh, startups uh, uh, very much often fail in the earliest stages because of people issues and not because of technology. The same is true here in NASA missions. Kind of, we can figure out the technologies eventually. Every once in a while, the technology is taking us out. So the team and people issues, leadership issues that I would consider the most important ingredient.
0: And what makes people problems
1: or people issues so hard? Well, look, uh, uh, what happens, uh, especially, look, the best teams are the ones that are made out of people who are different from each other. But that also means that you have to spend the time to actually build a team and build trust uh, together. And what what happens, uh, there's a lot of failure modes in this. Uh, Sometimes it's ego. Uh, uh, Ego manifests. Sometimes ego is just insecurity somebody is insecure about their position and kind of puts the elbows out uh, sometimes it's uh, truly kind of a cultural issue that happens you know like we're all people in a sense that we have challenges in our lives so a key person all of a sudden is not available so there's it's not just the fault of uh, of people but generally speaking it's really the lack of understanding and learning from each other uh, kind of building a cohesive team with a common culture that is, I would say, at the heart of problems like that.
0: Can you um, be a bit more specific or give us an example of how you're dealing with that? I mean, you touched on the topic of you need a diverse
1: team or you need a learning culture. Can you guide us through some of these points? So let's talk, let's talk about uh, James Webb just as a story first. I'll come back to it. So what happened, uh, I, I joined uh, NASA in uh, 2016 and I noticed within a few months That we're not making progress. Uh, What I mean with that is every day uh, we worked, launch went over by one day because every six months we made a mistake. The team made a mistake that was six months to catch up. So it's a horrible situation. It's like, you know, with a car in the sand and spinning the engine and you're not making progress, you're burning the fuel. And the question is, why did that happen, uh, right? And what happened is that the culture from the top, the excitement about building the telescope, that kind of accuracy that that is required was very much shared at the leadership level, but it didn't propagate all the way to the people who actually touched uh, the telescope. Now, I, it's very easy to blame them. I actually don't think they should be blamed. It's a leadership problem. Culture is a responsibility of leaders, So what happened in this case? The the diversity was about not about uh, you know diversity of gender or backgrounds. It was about the NASA uh, company kind of interfaces did not work. Kind of information did not go across the interface in both ways, and uh, frankly, too many mistakes happen. It cost the U.S. taxpayer. $800 $800 million, dollars, That I got beat up in congressional hearings, rightly so, by the way. Uh, somebody needs to get beat up. Uh, most of the mistakes happened before I came, but but you take responsibility, you take it to the chin. Yeah, it's just the way it is.
0: Uh, what have you learned yourself from all your experience at NASA, but also before that, how you can actually build an organization that learns
1: faster than it fails? Well, I think what's really important uh, is to build a culture that it, whether it's in a startup team or in a bigger organization, you have to invest in the team. Like, I mean, the, the point is, it doesn't come for free. Like, so, so for me, uh, what that means, uh, you know, as a leader, I spend a lot of time hiring the right people. I actually really took personal, I've, often I recruited people. So I would take a list of the 20 best people we could find in the whole country uh, or the world in many areas and call them personally, Right, it's like, hey, we think of you here. You should, you know, and most of them, of course, they're gainfully employed. Uh, NASA pays really badly, by the way. So, so kind of, so if somebody is interested in money, you will not get them. But many of them, many of the best people we hired, uh, they told me after the fact um, they would have never applied if I didn't call. By the way, many women, especially. So we had a very diverse team, but we made sure that the pipeline was full of people who actually were encouraged to do so. And then uh, you have to, that's not enough. Uh, kind of once you have a team, it's like a big uh, football team, right? You have them on the field. They're not a, a championship team yet. You have to build it. And so, so what that means is you have to learn to listen to each other, to learn how to say no to each other, say yes to each other, and uh, and really uh, create an openness. Uh, you know, It's very easy for you to never hear about mistakes or problems. Here's the recipe. The first person who tells you a problem, shoot them. Like punish them really heavily. You'll never hear about it again. Of course, you'll have problems, but you'll never hear about them again. So what you have to do if somebody finds a problem, thank them and then go solve them together, right? So, so it's that kind of way. I mean, what I did with James Webb, frankly, the, the head of Northrop Grumman, the company that struggled I, I mean, the previous guy that was there, he no longer worked there after I was done. <laughs> you know, I had to reboot the, the problem, the, the whole team. But once we had the other guy, we called each other pretty much every week. Every problem I saw, I told him, never held back. And every problem he saw, we told each other. So sometimes he talked me off a worry, right? And many times I learned about the problem long before I heard it. And then I waited. and never acted on it. I waited until I heard it through the organization. If it took more than 48 hours, like, what's your problem? You're supposed to be transparent, right? So so for me, it's really building. This is a team, by the way, of 10,000 people. So it's a little bit different than a startup team from that perspective. But transparency and uh, and really openness to being critical about oneself uh, and kind of also accepting criticism, which I had to also. The guy says, you're exaggerating. You're exaggerating, stop. It's like, okay, why? Good, I will stop. Let me see whether you're right. So it's, it's really both sides is my point. Yeah, you've now been mentioning
0: a couple of points that sound to me like the ingredients of a performing team, like openness, transparency. Yes. Can you add more very important topics to the list
1: for an, a high-performance team? So I think one of the, one of the things I learned is that uh, I had more penalties from many, and remember, I'm in a high-risk business of doing uh, missions. Even in that environment, more problems came from not making decisions than making the wrong decisions. So for me, kind of decision velocity, I, I'm a strong believer that the velocity of making decisions and schedule in many times is way more important than uh, focusing on money. Because if you, do, if you move fast, you'll actually save money. But it's actually easier to save days than saving money. Because as humans, it's easier for us to understand it's, you know, end of the week, I'm not done, than it is, uh, you know, some budgetary limit, especially if you work as a team, because you always think the other person is the problem. So kind of schedule Schedule is a really good thing. So decision velocity is just a really critical thing. And especially, you know, Jeff Bezos uh, always talks about uh, kind of one-way door versus two-way doors. Like there's stores, like at the airport, you get out, you cannot get back in. That's a problem, right? So, so decisions in which you can't come back, you really want to think. But the others go. Like, frankly, if you wait more than 70% of the information that you want it's probably a mistake. You're wasting every day after that because frankly, you can correct it at the back end. So that's another way kind of if you train your team to really, and frankly, also delegate. I mean, many decisions just delegate them. I don't want to hear them. You're in charge, go do them because I will not chop your head off if you're wrong, right? Especially if you can explain why you took it. So for me, that's another one, velocity. Velocity.
0: Hi, this is your host Christian speaking. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did preparing and moderating it. It's one of my specialities and passions to unlock the wisdom and insights of exceptional people as a moderator and facilitator. So if you want your next strategy workshop to be a success or want to engage in productive individual sparring sessions as a leader, let's get in touch. Check out my agency, Sparker, which serves changemakers and innovators. Learn more on the website www.sparker.ch. That's S P A R K R.ch. You find the link in the show notes. And now, let's spark you up and get back to this inspiring episode of the Sparker podcast. Very good. And something that I'm also very curious about, I mean, decision-making is an art
1: in and of itself. Um, Is it only the um, very rational? Oh, I think there's something else to it. I think we're human beings that were in our lives, the way we became where we are in the last many thousand years, we learned how to deal with of get information that is not going through our brain and and act what kind of we see we feel dangers we there's a sense of uh of uh uh kind of an environment a kind of something that really bothers us we feel it in our stomach uh we 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 tighten up like I think it's important to kind of look at uh all information you're getting not just from your brain from your body so so i I just I don't think decision-making is all rational in all cases and neither should it be. I just think we're uh, complete humans. And, uh, and I think it's important that we know which part is not the rational part. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay. So, and, and what I really love about this, and I I really recommend, I mean, of course I'm not the guy inventing it. I'm just the person who's using It's kind of for hard decisions, making decision journals that actually says, why am I making the decision? What am I expecting to happen? And basically what that does, it's a really honest feedback to oneself. Because like, if it happens, it's like, okay, I expected that. What happened to me, often it it happened, but for different reasons. (laughs) And you know, the decision actually was done for entirely the wrong reason, but it was okay. I knew it was the right decision, but I rationalized it myself. It was perfectly the right decision, but not because of the brain piece. So the decision journal is a very useful. And it's not like an hour per session, right? And if you spend more than 10 minutes, it's too much. Like, so really make it a lean feedback mechanism for yourself. That, I found that really useful. It helps you figure out where your biases are too. Kind of we, have, we all have blind spots, you know, where are yours? And that's very
0: concretely just a notepad, a notebook or something on your iPhone or a smartphone. How do you do it?
1: Yeah, uh, I have a little notebook with a pen. So I write it by hand. Nobody can read my handwriting except me. So it's classified. In other it. I mean, I just I, like first grade, my teacher said he will never do anything because he can't write. Look. So it's like, he, she was right, by the way, in one case. Like I never could write. So the computer was invented. She didn't know that. So that's good. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, so I write uh, and uh, because it, that forces me to be concise. Uh, I don't want like copy, you know, I don't want many words. It's not a scientific, it's a self-feedback mechanism. Just don't make it more than it is. That's my version. But there's other ways. Uh, some of my friends, they uh, they they keep kind of daily files, that they're just looking at. My only daily files are food, workout, health data. And I keep daily files of that because I know that I have blind spots there. I don't, I don't uh, you know, like I eat bad rhythms and I get stressed. So that's my feedback. So that's what I'm doing electronically. And I've done for 10 years, every meal, every workout, everything that I eat here will be in that file.
0: It's great that you will have a souvenir of this evening in your files. Yeah, it's mostly Um,
1: ice cream so far.
0: Very good. (laughs) Ice cream has always been the favorite in the last couple of years. Uh, So, um, well, I would like to uh, remain a little bit with this way of uh, decision making or how you assess situations because um, we just talked earlier and obviously many people know you are coming from the Bernese Oberland and so do I. We did not grow up too far from each other, actually. Uh, small villages and in these regions you know the concept of a pure Wiesheite. so it kind of translated loosely the wisdom of farmers uh, and and i was curious to hear your thoughts on how would you compare this way or this way of thinking or seeing the world compared to just the pure facts or data and how has this influenced you, this, uh, this way of growing up and this environment?
1: So it's, what's really funny is like if you, if you asked me when I was uh, 20 years old whether growing up how I did was a strength or a weakness, I would have thought it's a weakness. I thought all the other people had it easier. If you ask me today, it was one of the biggest strengths I had because I looked at the world differently than everybody else. And my so-called weaknesses turned out to be the magic I had. And part of it was, uh, you know, all the people that I grew up with were, did apprenticeships, they uh, worked hard, like as farmers and so forth. Uh, Many of them were relatively uh, low wealth. And so I'm good at saving money because I just think of them. And uh, even though many of the American taxpayers, of course, are not in the Swiss Berner oberland but... Uh, But kind of my point is, it helped me uh, look at the value of money, especially if you spend money. Like I want to really make sure that I can explain it to the taxpayers. I also, uh, like, frankly, I learned a lot going through factories. Uh, I always, like, if I wanted to know a project, uh, still do that today. If you want to know how a program is doing, I'm going to the bottom of the organization and walk around, like in a cafeteria and sit with people. And often I learn problems long before that they're bosses, because I know how to talk to them. Guess why? Because that was my job, like making something or shuffling dirt or cleaning. You know, so I, I know you get to know the culture. Uh, the other piece that you're mentioning, this uh, kind of intuitive decision-making, is something, problems I would have created by myself. If it, you, you get to kind of know at the environment uh, overall. But what I did in all cases, though, I really... Always asked other people to check on me because I didn't trust it enough. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of oh, the, kind of if hundred percent of the reasons is uh, whatever it is. Kind of I want to make sure that the, at the majority of it, where I can get data, I use the data, and I I can explain to others how the decision is. But at the end, if I'm really honest, I, there's a important intuitive element to it.
0: I, um, I heard or I researched that apparently you have two people or had at NASA two people solely hired to challenge you or yeah. to say no to you. Is that true or is that just a rumor? No, no, it's true.
1: It's true. So, so, I mean, uh, I just, I know myself that I'm a really fast decision maker and sometimes too fast. And frankly, um, I'm very comfortable with risk much more so than most people. And so, and so almost too much, especially for an environment like NASA. So, but even at, at my previous employer, I hired somebody who basically says, You're, if you want the, the different person from me, and I will we will always talk before we make a decision because I want to hear your opinion. I just learned I'm better. I mean, I'm better if I'm being challenged. And so in, in, at NASA, it's such a huge bureaucracy, uh, you really want to make sure that the mistakes you make do not create huge craters. And so, so basically, it's really important. By the way, sometimes they say no, and I did it anyway. <laughs> but, but many times, I stay, I stay, they said no, and I asked why. And uh, I mean, there are a number of things, problems I, problems I would have created by myself if it wasn't for that strategy. So I had one kind of on programs and then I had one on just the operational piece because the operational piece I'm learning, especially in a government environment, kind of my intuition was not very good. So I hired one for that too.
0: Okay. Very interesting. And there's also another thing that I found interesting in one of the conversations I listened as part of preparation. You once said that um, science is not like democracy. Sometimes Everybody says yes, but there's an important no that you need to hear and act on. And I'm very curious to learn how do you spot when you are hearing an important no
1: or a wrong yes, or how do you spot those things? So I think what happens in in science, right, kind of in many of the areas, the correct answer is we don't know. (laughs) I mean, we we really want kind of as humans to basically say we know the answer. But the answer in many of the problems, you know, like if you look at the uh, Carina Nebula behind us, you know, there's many things we know about and many things we don't. Why are there so many organics? All this brown stuff is organic. When I went to school in Bern, and by the way, in every university in the 90s, organics after a stellar explosion, which dropped all these materials out. That was not possible. Organics happened really late in a in a, a generation of the solar system. Why is it? I don't know right kind of there's models now, too many models and so so for me, I think what you tend to kind of over time you get a sense kind of like you ask people if they create a no right or have an alternative you ask uh why and and frankly, if there's. A reasoning that makes sense, right? I mean, you leave the door open. I mean, what's really important is to not shut the door to learning uh, before you really have conclusive evidence. I'm a strong believer that every, everything in science should be attacked from time to time. You know, even things that are really uncomfortable to scientists, is climate change coming from human factors? Let's attack it. From time to time, let's attack that. Not because there's not good evidence, but I want to make sure that the evidence is strong. And it's not because I'm kind of not, a, by the way, we're scientists, not believers. I want us to, to really be comfortable attacking things. There's no sacred cows in science. And so for me, that's what good science is about. Kind of that courage to attack things, even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And and that's what what did the environment really want. That's, by the way, why I looked at UAPs. I realized, you know, UFOs, as we would say here, got to, the reason we're not doing it is because it makes all of us uncomfortable. That's a really bad reason. <laughs> like, I'm not sure there's any science that's coming from it, but I want to demonstrate that we're comfortable, even if it's controversial, going after a question, especially if taxpayers are interested in it. So for me, that's, that's what I mean with it. Yeah.
0: Now you're saying that, of course, in science, every once in a while, you need to attack an idea. And ideas being attacked is something very frequently happening to innovation as well, or innovators. And I would assume that one part of your job as a leader is also to protect uh, the, the agents of change or protect oh, yeah. the innovators. Is that true? And if yes, how did you do that?
1: So frankly, uh, I will never... Be in a room where a person gets attacked. I mean, frankly, as the head of the meeting, I stand up, shut down the whole discussion. And I've done it many times. If a person is attacked. If 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 the idea is attacked. The idea is attacked. That's fine. If you're in our team, no idea is sacred. Not mine, not yours, everybody. That's the way it is. If a person gets attacked, there's an immediate shutdown. Even if the person is not in the room. I've done it, right, kind of uh, I would, we had a mission with an international partners. It's not on this continent, right? Kind of we, we worked and, and somebody made a really disrespectful comment. The manager of the project made a really disrespectful comment. I shut down the whole discussion and basically said, if you speak like this in front of the team, you will never be successful. Because the only way you're successful is your team respects the other. And if you do not understand, this was an Asian culture, If you don't understand the value of the Asian cultures, go learn. Otherwise, you cannot be the manager. So figure out what you want to do. Kind of for me, you can attack what they're doing. Kind of what you can attack their ideas, but you cannot attack the person. And for me, I think kind of a safe environment. That's kind of the code where people use. It's absolutely essential, especially if you want to go fast, because uh, uh, because there's no penalty if you do not take care of that. Uh, frankly, very soon you're tearing your team apart. You cannot do it because because you will create wounded people in your team. And, and you know, that it will always catch up with you. There's no shortcut.
0: Mm-hmm. And respect or respecting other people is something that I um, heard uh, as a pattern in all the interviews I read or listened to. And Also, uh, I think a beautiful story was um, the first thing you built for NASA. That was not just something you conceptualized on paper and that's it. You built it yourself. And that was during your PhD at the University of Bern. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And can you please tell me or tell us the story of why this was so impactful for you? This first thing you you built yourself and the respect you found um, in this labor. Yeah, no,
1: I Instead mean, sort of even as a little kid, I thought it was pretty cool to build something for space, right? And and frankly, we can do that, right? And kind if of there's like, I mean, one of the reasons we want to do this master is we want more people to do it because it's possible. So do it, right? But I felt especially with my environment that I came from, I thought it would be really cool instead of just doing what physicists do, is uh, to get trained by a technician to actually mechanically assemble it. So he trained me, you know, uh, Henna was his first name, right? Uh, He's no longer with us. He trained me and I took the patience and he was so proud. Actually, for the final assembly, he left the room. And basically say, I trust you, go do it. That's
0: fantastic. Uh, I guess it's also a source of that you understand that all sorts of different kinds of work that flow into such a huge project are valuable. It's not just uh, uh, the PhDs that are valuable, it's also the
1: builders, it's everyone. Oh, absolutely. Because at the end, who's touching the spacecraft? You know, for each one of these missions that we have, for each PhD, there's something like 20 engineers and there are 200 technicians. So if you do not respect the te- technicians, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Because kind of at the end, the people who actually make the parts, they need to understand what you're doing and they need to be as excited and frankly, as part of the team uh, and in many ways, you know, as uh, important. Uh, and I, I learned that, you know, when I built some of my first instruments, I made many mistakes. I managed badly. And I remember one day we had one uh, year, we had to work through the entire Christmas season because there's a launch we need to deliver. And we were not ready. And we had to work the whole Christmas season. And i stood next the whole Christmas season. I stood next to the mechanical technician who made mechanical parts, you know, and all I could do, by the way, I could not help him. The machine was too complicated. I could not learn it. But what I could do is feed him I could support him, right? And I could tell him that it's not his fault. Like it was him who had to catch, you know, bail the, pro- the people out. And uh, I, I made the mistake. It's, I was the lead. Uh, to do that's so over me. I'm not going to be having him work. And I'm not, I'm with, you know, like, so when he is at work, I'm at work also. Because that, that, that's what I mean with respect, right? So remember, trust and respect are not words. They're all actions, it's kind of things you do, uh, things you, uh, of course, you can destroy trust and respect with words, but you're not primarily gaining it with, uh, with words. It's consistent action that does both. Uh,
0: that sounds to me like a, one of the core principles of your leadership philosophy. Um, can you tell us a little bit what has um, changed uh, on your view of what the most important qualities of leadership are over the years?
1: It's actually a hard question. I've not thought about it uh, very much kind of in what way I've changed. I mean, mean, first of all, I I think that leadership has very little to do with rank. I think it has very much to do with action and kind of the uh, ability to think on behalf of a team and add value. And so for me, probably what I spend more time on is just give give people more leadership opportunities kind of to prove to them to themselves that they are leaders kind of that their dna is really one of a leader uh, without really talking a lot about like just just to be yourself like and kind of observe so kind of for me i thought i at the beginning and perhaps it's just because of where i got my leadership training i thought it's a lot more training and top down I, i thought kind of of course, we can, like a good musician, you can always become a better musician by training. Leadership is the same. Uh, but kind of if there's a, something that I want to see also like a good musician, something innate that is there. And then kind of for me, I probably, at the beginning, I thought much more is trained than innate. I actually, I think that ratio in my mind, I shifted towards really finding the natural behavior of people and, and kind of kind of explaining to them that they're leaders. Kind of the interesting thing is actually that many of them don't know. I remember standing in front of this, you know, I most I, I, during my time as a professor and I tried to find a leadership team and so I brought in this woman and I basically said, who do you think is the best leader in the class? And so she comes up with all these names and uh, I said, I don't think so. Why? And I started You know, it's like, I'll give you reasons. I described what she did, not with her name. It's like, uh, the best leader did the the following. You know, like, this is kind of the behavior the best leader did in the class. Who do you think it is? And the last person she thought of is herself, you know. And at the end, by the way, she's super successful now. But she had to see herself. By the way, I I told her I wanted to be the leader of the whole team. Uh, I remember when she uh de- we worked with Google and we set we deployed satellite stations in Africa this was to uh to really figure out how we use uh, internet in kind of environments that are not uh have not do not have technology and kind of figure out how it works kind of things that went into investments of, of other Uh, companies and she ran that whole team landed down there uh, got off the plane everybody where are the men it's like there's my team like four women it turned out in this case Uh, and she was the leader and uh, just did incredible work right and impressed the heck out of it she's the one perseverance rover you saw you talked about she was the person who got the two core instruments on uh, even though they were behind she she pushed it through right that's that's the person right joan is her name by the way but again, in the room, she never thought of herself. So that's one of the, uh, the the elements, I think, also as a supervisor to kind of see leadership in others. What do
0: you see in another person when you see this leadership?
1: Well, I see somebody who's looking for purpose and kind of managing to align others kind of seamlessly and kind of figuring out uh, where the strengths are of the weaknesses of the individual part of the teams and naturally aligns them so people are their best, their better self in the environment. So they kind of somebody who's a good observer and, and kind of, uh, and, uh, and frankly, they also score. They create success kind of in the team. But kind of the first thing I see is just uh, somebody who is a good observer and, and also has the courage to stand out and break ties. It's like, okay, Uh, I'm going to make a decision. And, uh, you know, after we listen to everything. So it's these three things, again, understanding people in the team, pulling them together, making decisions, but also uh, uh, kind of over time, uh, creating momentum and success behind them.
0: It's fantastic. I think I could talk to you for for hours and hours, Um, but we also have to respect that it's not just the two of us here. There are also other things happening around this bubble here on stage. So I'm slowly but surely coming to a a close. But um, when we look at this image of this nebula, nebula, um, I would say I'm not the only one who sees something majestical, something beautiful. And what I'm very curious about, To hear from you or learn from you is, um, as many people might know, um, uh, when you grew up, your father was, um, or yeah, he was um, very religious, also very strict about the word of God and everything. And you decided as a young man to be a scientist, to be a skeptic, to, to leave the family even, leave it behind. And what I would be very curious is to hear your sense of, now that you've spent so many years of exploring space, looking at the universe and everything that is out there, um, with the the way of science, um, do you feel further away from religion than ever? Or have these concepts of, let's say, religion or spirituality on the one hand, and science, are they now closer than ever for you, after all what you have seen and experienced?
1: I mean, I... As a researcher, I remember kind of the first time ever I figured out something nobody else knew about nature, and I, you get addicted to it. It's like, hey, I have this instrument. Nobody ever knew this about our sun or about the universe, and uh, and it feels important. It felt important. It it felt like of a this magnificent universe of a, felt like seeing learning something about something that's bigger than me. And I've never gotten rid of that feeling. Uh, kind of, I look at the picture like that, I I, I feel it's something important. Uh, I, I'm i sure my father would, if he looked at it, he would feel the same way. He would use a narrative that was have the word Lord in it or uh, heaven in it. I don't use necessarily that narrative, but I think we would understand each other. So in many ways, I don't think, uh, you know, the decision whether or not you're... Uh, Spiritual, you know, your spirituality, where how important it is in your life, or religion, how important it is in your life, very little to do with whether you're a scientist or not. It's a decision that you make. I have science friends, cosmologists who are really deeply religious, and I have some that are sworn atheists. I don't think, but all of them, in many ways, have that sense of nature is amazing and is beautiful. So kind of that. I, I, don't get stuck on the words so much, you know, kind of when it comes to something that's so mighty, whether it's the universe or the Lord or however you call it, uh, you know, we don't, why would we guess that we get all the details right? I think that generality is like, this is, it's great to be part of a, this magnificent universe of a part of a planet that has this amazing story and part of humans that' just wonderful and are worthy of our time and uh, our attention. The
0: universe feels important to you and this conversation was important to me. Thank you very much for the, the wisdom you shared, the, the inspiration that you are for many people and continue to be. And it is fantastic to welcome you back to Switzerland. Yep. So big round of applause for Thomas Zutty.
1: I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Thomas Zurbuchen for sharing his insightful learnings with us. If you liked this show, please leave a positive rating and share it with a friend. For more exciting conversations with leaders and changemakers in technology, innovation and entrepreneurship, please consider subscribing to the Sparker Podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify or wherever you get your favorite shows. In the Sparker podcast catalogue, you find, for example, a conversation with the explorer and adventurer Bertrand Piccard, a firework of an interview with the living legend of the watch industry Jean-Claude Biver, or a podcast with New York Times best-selling author Adam Alter about how to create breakthroughs in your career and with your teams. I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to another episode where I'll uncover the mindsets, tactics and insights of exceptional people to enable you, the change makers. And if you want to get in touch and work together on your next strategic initiative or innovation project, check out my agency, Sparker which serves changemakers and innovators with various services ranging from individual sparring sessions for leaders and workshop facilitation to unlocking strategic potential through tailor-made consulting and project management. Learn more on www.sparker.ch. you find the link in the show notes. It was a great pleasure having you with me this episode. I wish you a great day and talk to you soon.